In this episode, we wade out there with Eric Gryaski from Southeast Michigan. Eric grew up fishing the banks of Lake St. Clair in southern Michigan with his siblings. When his family decided to get away from the city and move further north, Eric continued to fish, exploring new species and different waters. The family also spent time fishing together every summer on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where Eric eventually attended college and dove even deeper into fly fishing for trout and steelhead, cultivating a love of streamer fishing. After school, he moved back to southern Michigan to work as an engineer and was reconnected with his old fishery, but this time armed with the tools and tactics he had learned in the UP. Soon he was guiding Lake St. Clair and chasing the one species he had been infatuated with since childhood, muskie. We discuss Lake St. Clair, fishing and learning with two brothers, and muskie tactics in Michigan. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Thanks for having me. Been uh, looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to talk to you uh, because I think that Michigan is just a, a wonderful state. It's beautiful and it has this kind of nostalgia or history to it that is cool about fly fishing with like trout unlimited and just, um, the flies. And I, I just think that, that part of the country is, is a really cool area. And, uh, you know, it's something I don't know a ton about and I've never fished out there and, and the lake fishing that you're doing as well seems pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm pretty fortunate to have, you know, the great lakes completely surrounding us. So we have, you know, all these, uh, cold water fisheries because of the, that, that great lakes with the, the river fishing and actually the fishing in the great lakes. But then, also the, you know, thousands of inland lakes and like deltas like Lake St. Clair, uh, where you have all kind of, uh, really good warm water fishing too. And you grew up in the South part of the state and then moved up to the North part of the state and then moved back to the South part, right? Yeah, so, that's right. Kind Eric. of been all over. Yeah. Spent like the first, you know, 12, 13 years of my life in, in lower Michigan, uh, you know, fishing Lake St. Clair almost every day. Uh, and then, my, you know, my parents want to get out in the country a bit more. So we moved a bit more up North. Uh, and that's where, you know, we also have a, a cottage by the Sabo river in Michigan. So we, you know, spent time fishing along there. Uh, and then, you know, went to school way up in the upper peninsula. So, uh, went from there, graduated and came all the way back down to, to Southeast Michigan. So yeah, I've been kind of all over the state over these last couple of decades. Did you think we were going to come back? I mean, when you're a little kid, you're out there, you said every day out on Lake St. Clair and now you're out guiding on it. I mean, was that ever a thought? I know you're, we talked before the show, you're also an engineer. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, your guiding is a second career for you kind of, but, uh, I mean, that must, is that trippy for you or what's that? A little bit. I never thought I would. I, you know, um, I think I read a stat and this is a while ago, which has probably changed at something like 70 or 80% of the people end up living within so many miles of where they grew up. Uh, it's probably changed in the last like 10, 15 years. But, um, 
Yeah, I, I never really thought, I didn't think I'd live here because you're always kind of saying, oh, I'm going to go away and do something else. Uh, it just kind of worked out that way. Um, you know, found, found a job down here after college, started, you know, fishing Lake St. Clair uh, a bunch more again, eventually. Yeah, again, again. So uh, it's funny because, you know, um, you know, we talked maybe a little bit about this before, but, you know, doing the trout fishing, then steelhead fishing, it was all kind of having to go, you know, two, three hours west of here or two or three hours north of here to get to good cold water fisheries. And um, once I got a boat and started fishing Lake St. Clair again and kind of forgetting growing up uh, just how good a fishery it is. And it's even better now than it was then uh, for like smallmouth, musky, things like that. Well, that's a good news story. I mean, yeah. uh, usually we hear about declining <laughs> right. fisheries and stuff. So, well, there's definitely that- yeah, sorry, there is definitely that. Um, and part of that is because when I grew up as a kid on there, the lake was very, the water was very heavily stained, um, in kind of a combination of the zebra mussels mostly. Uh, oh, I've clean, heard of those things. Yeah, yeah. Those zebra mussels, right? Clean Water Act, things like that. Um, the lake started clearing up a lot, and when it cleared up. Um, clarity wise, got more vegetation back and fish like bass and, you know, predator fish, muskies, pike, all that kind of exploded, um, getting much better. Of course I can say, well, back in the day, even like 10 years ago, the fishing was way better than it is now. Uh, and that's just a combination of the lake goes in cycles, um, you know, up and down. And then also just the popularity of the fishing too, right. Um, just in the last so many years, you've seen it just explode where it's, uh, you know, way more fishermen out there, uh, specifically say for musky and even maybe bass than there ever has been before. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk about that more later, but I want to put a pin in it for now and Mm -hmm. continue on with going up to Northern Michigan and fishing up there. And why was that a special experience for you? And we talked a little bit before the show as well. I know that you were fishing with your brothers a lot and your, your family. It seems like that's been a priority for your parents and, was that a deliberate thing? And also, you know, when did fly fishing become a part of that thing? Yeah. Um, we you know, I was fortunate enough to grow up, both my parents hunt, hunt and fished, um, did a lot of stuff in the outdoors and they always wanted to do that with us. They never really took a trip into their much older, like on their own to do that. So we were always involved with that a lot. Uh, you know, maybe my sister had to reluctantly go into that, uh, to do, do some of those outdoor stuff. But my brothers and I have two brothers. Um, they, we are always really close with, with our outdoor activities. So, um, you know, going up north to our cabin literally like every weekend, uh, to going to the upper peninsula for, you know, one or two week trips every, every summer fishing, uh, just got to do a lot of that stuff up there. So, um, trout fishing between, you know, hitting little small streams for brook trout in the UP or fishing a, a much larger river like the Sabo where our cabin is. Uh, we did a lot of trout fishing first, at least when it come, came to fly fishing, uh, which we didn't really get into until kind of like our high school years. Uh, what drove you to fly fishing or what, what drawed you in about that? Yeah. And, you know, I, there's for me there's maybe one or two kind of specific moments I can remember as a kid uh, just being in a canoe with, with my dad throwing um, you know poppers for largemouth bass and bluegills and we always thought that was kind of neat but um, I guess specifically for me I was actually uh, 
on a little river up in the Upper Peninsula, and we used to always just throw little spinners uh, for the brook trout or brown trout. And I was watching this, you know, upper teens brown trout just, you know, rise in about every 10 seconds. And I finally realized he was eating black stones. And, you know, I had to fly rod in the car. So I ran back, grabbed a fly rod, came back out with a fly that kind of matched what I was seeing on the water. Uh, and to watch that fish rise and eat that fly, uh, I just thought that was really cool. So um, I definitely want to do more of that. And that's, again, kind of how it started was more dry fly fishing first. Yeah. Um, well, you're up in an awesome dry fly fishery up there. I mean, that, the Asabo, right? Yeah. Is, that's big time up there, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots of, you know, different hatches going on. Um, you know, very popular area, too. Uh, yeah, there's the South, there's a number of other rivers, too. But, yeah, definitely um, dry fly fishing. That that was definitely the, the first pull into it and then from there kind of went you know steelhead and streamers uh i've heard that i had somebody else on maybe and they were talking about uh you know nymphing is not as popular on that river and they said some of the reason at least for them mm -hmm. would is kind of there's tons of um, debris on the bottom it's real snaggy like lots of trees and stuff on the bottom is that i mean is that accurate or it just seems like uh I, d I just don't hear many people nymphing it a ton, but I don't know. Yeah, it, it depends on which stretches of the river. Uh, the stretches that we fished a lot, yeah, there is some debris, um, but you you could definitely do that. It's just something that's not real popular. Uh, steelhead fishing, obviously, it's extremely popular uh, to, to nymph White nymph fish. when you can dry fly fish. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah there's that. Um, yeah, so really, it is kind of interesting. Um, for the most part, at least the stretches of the Sabo where we fished, it was a lot more, um, you know, either streamer fishing, obviously lots of dry fly fishing is probably the most popular. And then you see occasional like wet nymphing, you know, uh, you know, wet flies, that, that kind of thing, sure. but you know, like yeah. little soft hackles and stuff, but yeah, you don't see, it's interesting. You don't see that much there until I would say that could change when you go to some more of the upper river where it's much more smaller, you'll see, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of that, but I, I don't think, I don't know, just in my experiences, I didn't experience as much as seeing it, uh, the nymph fishing happening as much as, say, like out west, where you'd see that. Yeah. And then you got into streamer fishing too, right? You're really into streamer fishing. And that's one of the things that kind of carried over into when you went back to Lake St. Clair. Because when you were a kid out there, you weren't really fly fishing on the lake. And then you go up north, you pick up fly fishing and dry flies and streamers. And then you, it sounds like you kind of take that kind of game down to your old stomping grounds on Lake St. Clair. Right. Yep. And like I said, it was a lot of dry fly fishing, um, things that you can do a little easier waiting. Uh, once I got a drift boat, then it changed, you know, the first time we drifted down to the Sabo river and caught like a 20 inch Brown on a, a streamer. Uh, we definitely knew we wanted to do more of that, but then, yeah, that's when it kind of, you know, we realized, Hey, in the warm water fishing, uh, all those spots that we used to fish with Rapalas or, um, spinners and things like that, you could fish that same way with a streamer and, and catch that. Yeah. So it, it started off with, you know, smallmouth bass, uh, and we have a lot of those on Lake St. Clair. So we did that a lot and that was a lot of fun. Um, but I can remember a specific time for me, what really kind of got me into uh, trying it for muskie, uh, was, you know, we were, we were on a fishing trip in the upper peninsula in July and we went from having 85 degree weather to also having a cold front come in where it was like mid forties and sideways rain for four or five straight days and nothing's eating, uh, feeding at all. And 
my my youngest brother and I decided let's go try for muskie and we just had spinning tackle back then and we we caught one saw a few others and we we're like hey you know we could do this on Lake St Clair with with flies and so we started doing that there and it, you know it just kind of grew from from there why in your brain were you thinking with flies like why not just come down there with the gear you had is it because if fly fishing was the thing now and that's what you got to do it, it, you know it really was we were so kind of um just enjoyed the big streamers and that, that's something i you know um you know everyone's gonna say we did it first it wasn't we did it first but in michigan throwing big streamers and whether it was like because of the kelly gallops or the rust maddens in michigan uh that were really into you know pushing the limits on how big of a streamer uh, that you can throw for for trout to try to eliminate the small trout and just catch the bigger ones. We were really loving that, um, throwing you know bigger flies for them, and you know maybe going an eight hour float, which you might only catch one or two fish, but you're going to get the you know the bigger fish in, in the river type of thing. So we were already really enjoying doing that. So going from there to like something for musky where you got to throw bigger streamers. Um, I guess it was just a, an easy progression for us. And for me as a kid, I always, muskie was something I always dreamed to do. No one else in our family really wanted to fish for muskie. It was a big walleye perch fishery at that time. Uh, and whenever the weather was really crappy, my dad would wake me up like, no one else wanted to go, let's go muskie fishing. And him and I would go out muskie fishing all day. So ever since I was a little kid, like I was just fascinated with muskie. So the thought of, hey, let's go fish for muskie and then do it our favorite way, which is to throw streamers, was just kind of taking two passions of mine and kind of putting them together. Yeah, that's really cool, man. And all your brothers got into fly fishing too, huh? Yep. And um, it kind of a progression that kind of just came together um, all about the same, roughly the same time, even though we were different parts of the state at the time, because I, like I, I was going to school way up in the top of the Upper Peninsula and they were 10 hours away down uh, West Michigan at the time. Uh, it was just one of those things where, you know, um, we kind of still did it at the same time, even though we weren't fishing together, we were fishing with friends and other people. But if I had like a day of fishing, like the first thing I want to do when I came home was, you know, talk to my brothers and let them know. And we did this or did that. And they're kind of doing a similar type thing, you know, totally different types of rivers, um, you know, different kind of fishing, but, uh, yeah, our, our passion for like fly fishing kind of grew together, even though we were far apart at the, that particular time. That's pretty cool. I think it's cool that like when I was in Colorado, that's when I kind of started fishing more with people that, that were actually serious fly fisher, fly fishermen, you know? And, um, so I learned a ton, just not even, you know, they, it wasn't that they were, some of them were definitely much, much better anglers than me. Uh, but you know, some were just, you know, slightly better, you know, but it was like, we could bounce ideas off each other. And I don't know. I just remember that as a time where I really progressed in fly fishing a lot because I was going a good amount with people that we talked about it and we could think about it together, you know, and just, um, you know, at the basic level, you come back from fishing different sections and it's like, how'd you do? And what are they biting on and stuff like that. But then other, other things like how you're rigging your system and all things like that. And you know, that was helpful. My, my brother, Matt, he's the, the middle of us three. Uh, he got, I want to say into it more, but being kind of in the Grand Rapids area of Michigan, fly shops around, um, was able to get a little bit more involved with, uh, fly fishing and, um, maybe even doing different techniques and stuff like that. So I definitely learned a lot from fishing around him when it came to that, you know, when I come back down to lower Michigan, 
Um, but at the same time, you know, we in the younger ages, we were also a little bit competitive. So it was also a little bit of like, you know, trying to do it on your own first and maybe be the first one to do that. But then also not being too competitive where we like, couldn't take like advice from each other. Um, as that, as we got older, that did change a little bit to where we were a lot more like open to, um, mm-hmm. doing stuff, uh, not to get too sidetracked, but kind of funny stories, um, about how we, we used to always go up to the Sabo river early in May, three, four days ago, streamer fishing. Um, and it was, you know, myself, my two brothers, we'd be in the drift boat and kind of the rule of thumb was you either, you know, you go from being on the oars to the front of the boat and then front of the boat to the back. And we'd rotate about every half an hour or if someone got like a 24, 25 inch fish, we'd then rotate automatically. Um, okay. and we literally would have to have us when we're younger, we literally yeah. have to have a stopwatch going. How, and like, how young are we? How we're young? talking about like in our twenties, right? In our twenties, okay. uh, have a stopwatch going. No, Maybe. no, but it's like, we were still competitive enough with each other that we'd have to have a, almost like a stopwatch <laughs> going and be like, you know, 30 minutes is up, it's time to rotate. And we'd be arguing, well, you got great water. I had a bunch of froggy, slow water. That wasn't good. You know, that kind of stuff. And now when we get together, it's like, we're arguing who's going to row. Like, no, you go ahead and fish. I want to row. And it's like, no, you, you know, so, cause we don't, doesn't really matter who catches a fish or if we catch fish. It's just about being together yeah, at yeah. that point. That's cool. Who's the oldest? I am the oldest. Yep. All so right. I'm oldest. the oldest too. I have one brother. So some of what you're saying is hitting home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you remember any of the lessons that they were bouncing off you or something that they, they were able to give up to, to say like, Hey, check this out, man. It's really working for me. Yeah. Um, there's one that definitely, uh, comes to mind that, that, I guess change how I fished all the way to this day. Uh, when I first started musky fishing, um, like I said in that story, we're up in the Upper Peninsula. We come back; it's kind of middle of summer, and we fish. I fish rest of that year, and I probably you know catch a handful of fish, maybe ten muskies rest of that year. The next year, um, you know, caught like maybe like thirty muskies. But towards the end of that second year, my brothers started doing it a lot more. They, they found a couple smaller inland lakes by them that they could musky fish. Um, so they were going out all the time too, and we could kind of bounce things off of each other that we found that would work. Um, and there's one story, and again, I, I may be telling this wrong a little bit, but uh, my brothers were fishing in this small little jam boat with a little electric troll motor on it, and they were getting ready to move to a different spot. And my brother still had his fly out, and when they went to go take off, that fly kind of just spun around behind a boat, and this musty just came up and ate it. Where this is a, a lake where they get, you know, numerous follows on. So he, instead of doing your conventional strip pause, strip pause, he decided to start doing a two-hand burn and started, you know, hooking some fish. So he tells me about this. So I started doing it on Lake St. Clair. And that particular year, I ended up landing about 70% of my fish came on two-hand, like a hand-over-hand uh, retrieve. So it's just one of those things that, you know, from that year on, that, that's just always kind of been in my arsenal. Um, and eventually we might have got to it, but, you know, I got that, picked that up from him saying, hey, you know, I know you've tried this a little bit here and there and it didn't work, but it's working really good for us right now. And started using it on Lake St. Clair and uh, it's definitely something that I, you know, pretty much have to try daily now when I'm out. That's cool. That's when you tuck it up under your armpit, you know, the rod up there, and then you're just retrieving with two hands. Yep, correct. It's just... uh see the saltwater guys do it all the time and with musky yeah, fishing it, it doesn't salt. have to yeah. be like a, as fast as a burn as they do sometimes they just want like a fleeing bait fish versus like a a dying or a wounded bait fish imitation which is our you know more typical conventional strip pause retrieve okay cool well 
I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Lake St. Clair and fishing out there. That's where you're guiding, right? And and it's not just musky, though, on the lake, right? There's all different species. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why it's a special fishery for you. I'd imagine part of it is because you kind of grew up there and your family was big into it. And I mean, I just think that's super cool. And then you come back and now you're guiding on this place where you were a kid growing up and helping other little kids catch fish too, probably. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, what's, what's that lake like and as a fishery and what's unique about it? What do you like about it? Yeah. Um, so you're right. I uh, kind of growing up on it when, you know, now that I'm guiding, I'm out there all the time. It's a little bit different, but when I first started going back all the time, there's, I feel like every body of water has like a unique smell to it. I don't know if that makes sense at all. If you have like certain rivers or, but like, as you're getting closer Say to that the again, body, one, like one every, I feel like mo- a lot of different bodies of water almost have a unique smell to it. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but there's certain rivers when you get to it, that's just kind of, and maybe it's just, uh, uh, um, environment that's around it or something like that. Right. But I can remember always just as I'm driving to the, to the lake and you're getting closer to launch and you have the windows down, you can start smelling the water and everything. It's like this excitement gets over you. That, that's, that's what I got from Lake St. Clair. Um, and a lot of that's because of thinking of like my childhood. Right. Um, and so you go there, it's, uh, that, and that's why it's special to me. I guess what's why it's special, um, just as a fishery, um, you know, the, the bass fishing, you know, one of the better lakes in the whole country for smallmouth bass, um, yeah. which I'm not, hope I don't upset anyone. I'm not kind of crap on largemouth bass here, but the smallmouth bass is just, I, I feel, especially streamer fishing is a more enjoyable <laughs> it's okay. fishing. It's okay to fish. like what you like, man. Like, you can like what you like. Yeah. Uh, bass fishermen are, you know, they're, they're, they're a special breed, so I don't want to uh, hurt their yeah. feelings at all. But the smallmouth bass, I definitely enjoy targeting more so than, say, largemouth bass. Uh, right. You know, I enjoy fishing for everything. Um, yeah. So, you know, we kind of start off in the spring where a lot of fish rolls year-round now. Um and, you know, at least a catch and release. So kind of hitting them pre-spawns kind of fun in the, the springtime because they're just really eager to eat a, a fly. Um, that's a lot of, you know, blast. And then we kind of go from that once they start spawning, I leave them alone. And we get a big white bass run out of Lake Erie that comes into um, Detroit River and Lake St. Clair. Uh, fish for those for a few weeks. And then, you know, musky fishing starting to get going in June. They're usually coming off their spawn by then. And once they're done spawning, We'll start fishing for them, uh, and then that kind of goes for for rest of the year. I might do a mixture of smallmouth and lar- uh, muskie. Uh, a, a buddy of mine, Eli, he always talks about what he used to love about coming to fish out with me is we always just took what the lake gave us, and what we mean by that is we might plan to go out for muskie that day, and if the muskies are just off and we're seeing a bunch of big smallmouth, you know, we'll switch over to the seven weights and start catching a, a bunch of smallmouth that day instead. Uh, and just like I said, always kind of just take what the, the lake gave us. Yeah, that's cool. I was that was I was going to ask that next is like how do you kind of you know when they're you're in between I guess you kind of decide what you're going for based on the season, but then there's in between times or just different days that are different fishing uh where you take what the lake gives you. I like that. Yep, that's yep. cool. And I always keep like a seven or eight weight in the boat, even while you're musky fishing, because you just never know. You know, start, the, we'll, we'll catch some big bass on the musky flies, right? You know, you're throwing nine, 10, 11 inch flies. So the bass will hit those too. They don't always get it, but if you're seeing them where they're chasing it, um, yeah, sometimes it's just fun for, for the people that come in the boat just to, um, you know, get a tug in the line for a little bit, because musky fishing can go, you know, hours sometimes without seeing a fish. So, uh, it's kind of nice. We have those other options once in a while. Yeah, sure. Uh, is there anything else that you can point to like a day or a trip where on Lake St. Clair, 
that you really had a breakthrough and really picked up your game or, or something that you're like, oh, that one trip? Um, I don't know if I have necessarily one trip that things that like, you know, all of a sudden the light just went on. It was kind of like a, a gradual thing. Um, moments that I do remember, there's a couple of them that pop in my head. One of them was actually, uh, you know, the first time I went out there, I had my youngest brother and we had just like, I would say like large trout flies. Uh, we were fishing, we caught a little tiny one. Uh, we were just happy to get one. But then, um, that's when I met a fly, local fly tire named Eli Barrett. And, uh, at the time he wasn't making musty flies, he was just making pike flies. But my brother said, Hey, why don't you just ask him to tie some pike flies a little bit larger than, than normal to use for musky. So, we're talking a little bit and I told him, Hey, I'm going out fishing by myself. Do you want to go? And he's like, heck yeah, I do. You know? So he met me there and we just got along like he was another one of my brothers. Um, but that day when we're out, I remember casting my fly out and I retrieved about halfway back to the boat and he's fishing the other side of the boat. And he said, Hey Eric, look at this fly in the water. See, see what you think about it. And I look at it and see it moving in the water. I'm like, Oh yeah, that, that looks really good. And I look back over to my side of the boat and there's a muskie 10 feet from the boat. You know, I'm like, oh crap, look, muskie right here. And I'm looking, I'm like, where's my fly? And I strip and it had it, right? So I had no idea that it had even eaten my fly, which is probably a good thing. I probably would have botched it or something. Um, so that really got the, the passion going. Uh, so that's a memorable one. Um, and another one was, uh, it was like my third year. I'd set out kind of two goals. I wanted to catch one on top water, which I hadn't done at that time. And then I wanted to get a 50-inch fish. Um, all my gear buddies that were out there were catching big fish all the time. And at the time, I just wasn't getting anything real big. I, I think my biggest one at the time was like 45, 46 inches. Uh, and I was starting to lose confidence that you could catch a real big fish on a fly. I'm like, maybe compared to the gear lures, I'm like, maybe the real big ones just won't eat a fly. Um, but I remember going out one morning. It was a perfect morning, like low winds, a little overcast. So I decided to throw a topwater bug on and... I don't know, maybe 10 casts into the day. There's a swirl on the fly and it ends up being 51 and a half inches. So I kind of killed two birds with one stone. Um, and that one, that one stuck in my mind. That was one of those ones where when I talk about with my brothers, instead of, you know, musky fishing, you get these little bite windows and they may only last 15, 20, 30 minutes. So if you catch one, you don't always get a chance to really celebrate because you're trying to go right back at it because you know you have maybe a, a limited time to, to catch them. Uh, that one, I remember sitting down at the bottom of my boat, just texting my brothers, um, you know, maybe a, a close friend or two about what just happened. And I just uh, wanted to relish the moment. So I just sat there and like drifted in the boat for like an hour, just um, <laughs> just laid back and just like thankful for that that day um, in well, that moment. Eric, if you had got back out there, you might have caught a 53 and a half inch. <laughs> well, you say that my gear buddies were like, get back at it. It might be a big fish window. Like you might get another one. I was like, nope, because, you know, and we do that now when we go in the river for trout, we'll actually bring like, you know, a six pack with us or something. And if we catch a nice one now, instead of getting right back at it, we row off to the side, we crack open a beer and we just kind of try to remember that moment, like really br- relish it all. We, you know, it may cost us some fish, but um, again, now it's about those moments, cherishing those moments more so than the amount of fish or the size of fish that we catch. No, that's really cool. I, I fish with my brother, uh, not a ton. He lives in Washington and I'm in Utah, but we do meet up uh, once or twice a year, at least, uh, usually. And yeah, I think we could do a better job of that maybe, you know, of just kind of like, okay, we caught a nice fish and let's all chill. You know, I mean, everybody's happy and enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, 
but I think I'm probably if I had to lean one way or the other, I'm probably lean too much towards the the like. All right, well, it's time to go catch another one. Let's go oh, catch yeah. another fish. And trust me, uh, been there. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's you know we spoke a little bit earlier about that. You know, kind of that transition that like a lot of fishermen go through, right? When you first start, you know, like you can't get enough of it, and you want to catch as many as you can, and then um, you go from there to trying to catch big fish. So it doesn't matter if you get one or two, but you want to get the biggest fish that's in the, the river or the lake, uh, to then trying to find a more challenging way of catching them. For example, like steelhead, trying to swing for them or strip streamers versus indicator fishing, you know, nymph fishing. Um, and now it's kind of like just enjoying the moment. Um, you know, who I'm with fishing, you know, maybe the location that I'm at, if it's something unique. So now it's kind of like, you know, catching a fish is kind of a cherry on the top. It's already just fun just being with those people and spending that time. You know, you still want to get fish, but now it doesn't matter who is long. Someone in the boat catches a fish uh, and just really kind of just cherishing those, those yeah, moments. Yeah. I, um, I, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Trust uh, me, before that, I was that guy that would like, my brothers will tell you, we'll get back at the end of like an eight-hour float and they're sitting there having a beer at the launch and I'm waiting out there still trying to fish, right? Just cause, Keep fishing. Yeah, I didn't, you know, maybe didn't get as many opportunities to fish as they did uh, for yeah. a trout and stuff like that. So I wanted to take in every every minute the, the cast. Uh, right. I wonder how coincidental it is that, when you're at the point where maybe it's not as important, then you're probably at the point too, where it's much easier to catch fish. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's some of that. so easy for you to say, yeah. <laughs> you know, like if you're the guy that's catching fish all the time, like it's pretty easy to be like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't no big deal. But I do think you have to go through that transition, right? Like you, you have to go to the point where you're catching fish all the time. Now it's like, okay, let's find a more enjoyable way to catch these fish or a more challenging way. Um, I agree. I agree. And also, like you said, um, you know, we were talking before, but, uh, before the show, but you said, you know, guiding now is almost kind of another, another level too, because now you're helping other people catch fish and helping them make memories. And, you know, a lot of people say they don't want to get into guiding because it's going to ruin their kind of experience or this is my personal thing. I don't want it to become work, but there's got to be not for everybody probably, but for some people, I would imagine that there is this kind of next part of fly fishing, which is helping somebody else. I mean, yeah, at a basic level, I, I experienced that with my son, right? Like when I go with my son, if I'm going with the intent for me to catch a big fish or for me to do pretty much anything other than just have him have a good time, like it's not going to be a good experience. Right. And the joy I get from helping him catch a fish or reel in a fish or net a fish or like any of the, anything I can get him to do that's fishy, um, is a, is a W for me, I I would say. And, um, you know, and I, and I like, I, I like rowing. I like to row now on the boat. I, I'll like, I like to kind of maneuver the drift boat. Um, maybe not as much as fishing, but definitely I, I really enjoy it, especially when I'm with my father. I like when he's fishing or, uh, and I get to move the boat. I agree with you there. Um, you know, obviously I still do enjoy catching fish, but there's something that's enjoyable too, um, besides catching fish, but also that, you know, you'd hope as a guide when they leave, uh, you know, obviously you get some ex- 
uh, anglers are very experienced, uh, you know, so they're out there to catch fish, but you hope that, you know, most of the people that come out in the, the boat with you kind of take away something, uh, maybe learn a little something besides, you know, catching fish. Uh, and then along those lines, you know, you know, we were talking about how, uh, you know, when I first started musky fishing, uh, you, you're so excited to go out there and just catch anything. Like if you caught like a 36 inch fish, you were just thrilled, you know, couldn't, you know, just super happy that you got that. And, you know, once you start to catch some and, you know, luckily enough, I'm on a lake that's, you know, got a good number of fish. So you, you start to catch quite a few of them that, you know, you, I also got to be careful with, with clients too. You know, you catch a 44, 45 inch fish, which should be an absolute beautiful fish to catch on a fly. And, and it is, but when you, you know, get them and also now you're unhooking that over the side of the boat and you don't like, not, I want to say appreciate the fish as much, but, you know, after you've caught a number of them for a long time, uh, it just becomes like another fish. But the thing that I absolutely love about guiding, especially if I get someone that's not has much experience with musky fishing, is that they still have that same excitement of catching just a musky. Sometimes it doesn't even matter the size of it. And getting to be part of that and that, that thrill that they, they have when they catch that, it, you know, it's exciting you know, as a guide too, uh, cause it kind of also brings you back to when you first started getting into it and you're just super excited about anything or, you know, a one fish day was still something that you're super excited about. Um, and it maybe I, I put a little bit of pressure on myself sometimes, not just as a guide, but even when I'm just hosting, you know, family members to come over, you know, I want them obviously to have a real good day of fishing. Uh, but you know, when you, when you have that, that person that's kind of new into it and fresh into it and they're just happy to catch off fish, like that, that's so thrilling just to be a part of that, that excitement uh, that you kind of lose after just, you know, fishing for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it definitely takes you back, you know, it takes you back to the initial excitement and uh, if, and, and I would think too, with musky fishing, I don't know if this is true, but you know, from my perspective, it's a unique fish. It's a new, a unique fishery. Like somebody like me, who's caught, I don't know, a lot of trout, right? I come out to fish with Eric. My first muskie is a unique experience. So even though maybe more experienced fly fishers come to you and they are, uh, there's that new thing, like just the, your first bone fish or your first saltwater experience or that kind of excitement of, of trying something new or new species and, I think that's something cool just about fly fishing period that I've talked about a lot on the show that I wish I had had that perspective when I was in the air force traveling around and I had all these different types of fisheries and stuff around in warm water and, and bass and smallmouth and, you know, stripers and stuff like that, that I never, you know, for me, it was Rocky mountain trout, man. That's, yeah. all, that's, that's it. That's what I grew up with. That's what I know. And what do you mean go fly fishing? You know, like I live in Georgia. Why would I do that? You know, like, uh, I'll get eaten by alligators, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You probably would have had a lot of opportunities too, with the traveling that you probably did in the yeah, air force. Not, I'd imagine. Not too many. I mean, I was, I was definitely, I was definitely busy. You know, I was working a lot, really long hours and, and, um, and I loved what I was doing, but in hindsight, it wasn't that, that wasn't the reason. Cause I found time to do other things. It just wasn't fly fishing, you know? Um, but like I used to go out to Jekyll Island and go c catch crabs and stuff. And like, I could have gone out to some of those barrier islands and, and thrown a f uh, flies around and, but 
Anyway. I know it's easier to see as you get later in life but like some of the stuff where I'm like, oh, when I was younger, if I would have known this about like, you know, the same thing yeah. going to school in the Upper Peninsula there, there's a tons of opportunities and I fished all the time. Um, it's just that I didn't fish in the style that I do now. And I just didn't have that knowledge back then either. And I look back at it, even steelhead fishing and stuff. It was just like, you know, nymph fishing and, and things like that. But knowing what I know now, if I could have went back to that, you know, teenager in college up there, oh, I could have had a, a, a blast with some of the fly fishing <laughs> that was available up there, you know? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, yeah, I just think that it's, um, for people that are living in other places that, uh, not everybody, but you know, th- there's opportunity out there to get to some really exciting fishing. And just m- my experience talking to people on this show is, is proof of that. I mean, I, I've talked to so many people's yourself included that passionate anglers, great fishery, great fly fishing, awesome stories, like community memories, the, all the stuff that you're talking about with your brothers and great times. And it ain't rainbow trout on the Gallatin river. You know, it's, it's, it's much different types of experiences. And, uh, so I just think that's cool. And what's cool about like, you know, everywhere in the U S really, I mean, I'm sure there's maybe some spots that's a little more difficult, but there's always a fishery nearby to be able to do this. Right. Um, it's just not, and that's what was so cool about getting into doing streamer fishing more. Um, you know, there's dry fly fishing, right? Now you need to have a very specific type of, you know, body of water, you know, that has the bugs available and stuff like that. But when it comes to streamer fishing, uh, you know, you can find anything pretty much, you know, if they're eating something, you could go out there and catch it, you know, whether it's smallmouth bass, uh, a carp, you know, whatever, largemouth bass, pike. uh, There's usually bodies of water around nearby that you can fly fish, right? Um, And that's, that's the cool thing is I think when I was really young, when you, I didn't know a lot about fly fishing. All you think about is dry fly fishing, right? You, you see that on TV, in a magazine, whatever. Um, and as things evolved and, you know, people started fishing different ways and different fly lines available and everything else, you, you realize, you know, you can pretty much fly fish for anything that's out there. And it's just kind of mindset. If that's how you want to do it, uh, you can find somewhere. Uh, like I said, you might not be on the Gallatin River, Missouri River, where there's all these, you know, so many yeah, thousand yeah, trouts yeah. per mile, but you can, uh, you can find places that the fish that's, you know, close to your backyard. Yeah. Let's get tactical. You ready? All right. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk, uh, let's talk musky fishing and Lake St. Clair. And I'd like to break it down. I've done this a couple times with, with guests, um, especially when, talking about species or fisheries that are kind of new to me or maybe not fished as often. Uh, but I like to break it down into five kind of categories. Uh, I had a guest on the show a while back who f- is a guide on the Madison. And these are the kind of the categories that he broke fly fishing down in for me. And it, it made a lot of sense. Uh, Do I need a pencil casting? and paint, paper here? No, <laughs> <laughs> no go ahead. It's kind of like that. It was, it was like, uh, uh, but casting, entomology, or kind of the flies that you're using, um, reading water, presentation, and fighting, fighting fish, like hook setting, fighting fish. Um, so hopefully, I think we'll have time for all that. But let's uh, let's talk first about casting. What what is um, considerations and techniques that you learned when you brought your fly fishing over to musky fishing on Lake St. Clair? So I guess the nice thing about fishing on Lake St. Clair, um, is 
it's kind of, you're kind of fishing these big flats. Like, you know, you're doing, sometimes you might, uh, you know, drift or, or move the boat by, by troll motor. Um, you know, maybe you're only going 100, 200 yards. Other times you may drift like a full mile. Uh, so the nice thing about that is that you can just do a, a nice, easy, comfortable cast. If that makes sense. It's not like if I'm in the river, you're trying to, you know, hurry up and hit this next little spot or this little log or this, um, you know, a little depth change type scenario. But out there, what's nice about it being kind of as a big flat is uh, the casts don't need to be accurate, <laughs> let's say. So it's just about more about getting it out there, uh, which isn't always an easy thing for everyone, but um, just so kind of getting out there. Distance versus accuracy. Yeah, absolutely. So and for me, it doesn't need to be dis- distance. Um, I, I usually do pretty long days with most of, of the people that come out there with me. So I tell them, cast what's comfortable that you're going to be all cast like effectively right. all day, right? Eight, 10, 12 hour days of casting big, you know, streamers, heavy lines. So I would rather you cast 60 feet and be able to do that all day versus trying to make like an 80 or 90 foot cast and you get gas halfway through because, you know, part of the thing is, is that you just don't know when it's going to happen. So if you're getting fatigued, tired, that's when you're going to get that fish eat and you're not going to get a good hook set or you're you know, not paying attention. So that's a nice thing about is that you can just make a, whatever the comfortable cast, you know, and obviously a little more distance is better. If you can only cast 30 feet, then we're going to be a little more limited to, to what we can do versus I got someone that's casting 60 or 70 or 80 feet, um, in covering water that way. But not, the nice thing is, you know, I'm, I'm drifting mostly moving the boat a lot. So you're covering water just in that way. So you don't have to always be making these super long casts. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what you're in the boat for too, is to kind of get to, um, different water and, uh, what size rod and, and reel are you, you using? Yep. So majority of the time I'm using an 11 weight with like, uh, probably about a 450 grain line. I, I do have some, I have uh, some 10 weights. So, um, and then also a 12 weight. Uh, the thing mm-hmm. I will say the 12 weights, definitely a tool to use at certain times, but you know, you've been casting a 12 weight all day. So <laughs> that, that 11 weight for me, at least what I'm doing, um, is, is kind of the, the, the perfect tool for me. Uh, but then I also have a 10 weight too that, you know, some, everyone's cast is a little bit different. Um, maybe not some people like a little bit of a softer, lighter rod, use a 10 weight, the 11 weight, it has a little faster, stiffer rod. So some people like that, uh, also depending on the conditions, uh, you know, being on a big open body of water, that's 25 miles by 25 miles, uh, wide, uh, you can get into some windy days. So, uh, sometimes having that little bit faster rod where you can uh, not carry as much line before you shoot it kind of helps out uh, dealing with the winds also. Yeah, I can imagine wind could be a big factor out there with casting. Yep. What kind of boat? Like, uh, you know, I'm trying to imagine this in my brain, but what, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been, I was in a intramural, non-professional intramural, I guess intramural is non-professional, right? <laughs> intramural bass fishing league in Missouri. Uh, so I know about bass boats a little bit. My, my, one of my good friends had a bass boat with a trolling motor and great memories with him, you know, like it wasn't fly fishing, but had a great time. So I'm thinking something kind of like that, but I'm not exactly sure what kind of boat you need for this setup. Yep. And those could be used, you know, you got your, like your flats boats too, that has the right days, but because we are dealing with uh, a big body water, choppy water, um, I actually have, uh, a deep V ranger, uh, for, cause a lot of times you are in, you know, two, three foot waves all the time. Uh, so just something that's more comfortable to, for the runs, you know, and it's got, you know, you got a big 
casting deck in the front and in the back too. So, um, you don't playing. have to get super shallow. No, there's nothing like that at all. Um, yeah, yeah, the shallowest yeah. might just be when you launch, but pretty much we're fishing. I would say the shallowest I'm fishing for muskies anyways is going to be probably like eight, nine foot of water, uh, upwards of like 25 feet of water. So, yep, not having to get real shallow like if I was trying to get up there. I mean, now there's other fishery types of fisheries there, you know, carp, bass, um, things like that. We're having like a flat spot or somewhere you can get real up and shallow, but for the muskie, um, at least on Lake St. Clair, I, I don't have to worry about that. So I'd rather have something that's, um, not just safe, but also just makes it a lot easier to run. Cause sometimes you're doing 20 mile runs, um, oh, each yeah, direction, yeah, yeah. um, and you get beat up pretty quick sometimes in a little bit, uh, lighter, lighter or smaller of a boat. Is there any way to do this stuff without a boat? I mean, is it kind of, you need it? Yeah, not really. Uh, there's certain times of the year in the late fall where fish can be caught off the shore. Um, but I'm, I suppose it might be able to be done in some areas, but there's just not the room for any kind of a back cast or anything. So, like, guys throwing conventional uh, spin gear can fish off the shores, but fly fishing would be tough, and there's not really anywhere to, to wade the uh, target muskies, at least not regularly. Okay, cool. How about flies? Uh, you meant these are the big flies, right? Yep, yep. Um, you know, I, without measuring, I, you know, I'd say our normal flies are anywhere in the range of like eight, uh, you know, 11, 12 inches, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, there are certain times of year in the late, late fall that I might throw something really kind of big and obnoxious. Uh, but for the most part, you know, there's this uh, fine line between um, the larger the fly, the more movement that you can, you'll lose, right? I, I think it's almost kind of linear in a way. Not to say you still can't get your fly to move, but when you're fishing in still water, different than rivers, rivers, it's nice. You get the aid of moving water some of the time, right? And it doesn't take much water to move to help get the fly to move. But when you're fishing in still water, um, the fly design really needs to be on point to really get this fly to, to move. I, you know, I don't want a fly that's just running straight all the time. I want a fly that kind of glides side to side or maybe moves up and down. So the larger the fly the more time you got to give it between stripping again to let, to really move and, and kick. So there's always that fine line between having a fly that moves more, that's a little bit smaller versus going to something that's big, that doesn't move as well or as fast uh, through the water. Um, so it really just depends on the time of the year. You know, earlier in the year, I'm kind of fishing. Usually you can still fish really big flies, but I'm usually fishing a little bit smaller, you know, like eight, 10 inch flies kind of thing. And as the year goes on, sometimes they just want something big and slow and you can start uh, really throwing those big flies, uh, especially if the water, uh, we get these big winds in the fall, like we're dealing with right now where the water gets turned up a lot, a lot stirred up. So we're fishing a lot more stained water than I would throughout the, the middle of the summer. Are you, it's just bait fish, uh, imitations or what, what are you, is it kind of just trying to piss them off or what is the fly supposed to be doing? Yeah. For us, it's just bait fish, uh, patterns. Um, I, I've, I've had this conversation with other people before and again, it, it may be different in the rivers, um, you know, where maybe the flies moving through an area of water and the fish kind of has some more to decide, like whether they're going to go eat it or not. Um, I kind of feel when you're fishing a real big body of water, like Lake St. Clair, you know, the, the fish kind of eat when they want to, and, and there's nothing they can't run down. So, right. um, you know, for the flies, I, I feel like, yeah, you can get some movement that might trigger like a, a strike, get their attention and stuff like that. But, um, you know, with the conventional gear guys, if they're throwing, um, 
what we, they call like a, a you know big bulldog, like a pounder. It's a giant bait that weighs one pound. You know, you're ripping <laughs> that thing as hard as you can do, and that thing's moving four or five feet, and then instantly dropping two or three feet in between each one of those rips. Uh, I think you can definitely trigger the aggression out of the fishes to go hit it, you know, when they're not wanting to feed. It's really kind of hard to get that aggressive of, of a retrieve from a, a fly. Um, so again, you may get that occasionally, but I think it is just actively feeding and then giving a presentation that will get that fish to, to strike. Um, where like I mentioned before, a fly that just runs straight all the time when you're bringing it in, you will catch fish on them occasionally, but getting that, seeing that side profile so that the fish can strike it is kind of important. So that's why I like that kind of gliding movement of the fly. What do you, what do you do to the flies to give it that kind of changing directions and things like that? Yep. So a lot of it is just the fly design. Um, you know, you can approach it by different ways. Some guys will use like, uh, spin like deer hair at the head there, kind of get a bulky head to, to cause it to kind of like glide a little bit. Um, you can do it different ways. Uh, my, my brother kind of does his kind of idea of, uh, he'll have like a rattle or some kind of weight in the rear end of the fly. And then, you know, you want your head big enough. So you almost get like the, um, jackknifing of a trailer where when the fly stops, the back end keeps wanting to go forward. Right. So it kicks it sideways that way. Um, for me, when I, when I tie my flies, I'll tie a shank in the middle, but directly to the hook. So it's still like one body, if that makes sense. And you can bend that shank to cause it to kick almost like tune it like a crankbait in a way where you can kind of bend it that middle of that fly to kind of get a little kick. So there's, there's a number of different ways where you can get, get that action out of the fly. Is that an, uh, part of your retrieve too, or using the rod much to, I mean, we're kind of getting a presentation, yeah. but, um, you know, you can change directions with your rod tip and like, how, how do you do that? How big of a movement would you need to, if you're doing that? Yeah, you can do that a little bit with your rod. Um, I find when I'm trout fishing and your, your flies are more like five, six inches big, seven inches big, uh, moving a rod tip, popping a rod tip will get a little more, it gets a little bit more difficult when you got big, long flies that are a little bit heavier through the water. Uh, so that's actually a really good question because a lot of people will ask me what kind of retrieve I do and I'll tell them it depends on the fly. And what I mean by that is because I'm trying to get that kick, some flies you can just do a real hard pop and, and pause and that fly will kick instantly. Other ones, especially the larger or longer they get, you have to do like a real long gradual pull and that will allow it to start gliding side to side. Uh, so yeah. it really just depends on the fly. Now, if I'm looking for like say a real fast movement fly, then I know I got to put a certain, a very specific fly on and then do that retrieve to get that way. So you can't always retrieve every fly the same way and expect to get the same results from that fly. So it just really depends on the fly and how you got to manipulate it to get that movement. Well, the goal, it sounds like the goal is the movement. Yeah, right? absolutely. The goal is the movement. That's the trigger. That's what the fish want. Yep. So whatever you need to do to make that fly give you the movement and different flies have different pros and cons for the movement and different retrieves work different for different flies. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's absolutely correct. Um, so it really does depend. And then you're picking these flies based on, you know, size, color, shape. I mean, are there things that you change in your fly selection for certain things or when you're out there, what makes you say, I need to change to a different color or I need to change to a bigger fly or is it kind of, you know, going out the door, it's this time of year and this is what we fish. Very good question. Um, going to color first. Uh, I think a lot of that depends on color of the water. Um, and that color can change based on sunlight too. Right. Uh, you know, 
just throwing out an example right now, if I have this like real nice green color wa- water um, at that time, greenish color, you know, I like kind of starting off with like a black and red or solid black fly or, you know, it's nice when I have two anglers in a boat because I can start one off with like a dark color, like black and the other one, something, you know, more bright, like yellow or gold. Um, and it's usually one of those two. Uh, now, where if I have water, it's a little more chocolatey color. I'm going to go with something that's more like a contrasting, like a black and bright orange or pink or or, or something like that, um, that, that shows a little bit more in that water. Uh, and then conversely, too, if it's gin clear, which I don't like to fish in that color water, but if I have to, um, you know, just like trout fishing, it, it's harder to get them to eat when, it, when it's super clear. If I have to, then maybe more of the naturals. Uh, might work a little bit better, but again, depends on sunlight, um, water clarity. So it can definitely vary day by day, uh, even hour by hour if the, if the water clarity is changing. How long does it take you to tie one of these flies? Uh, so I'm a little bit more like kind of particular about getting it just right. So for me, it takes me upwards <laughs> okay. of like an hour to hour and a half. Uh, That's what I was getting But at. I'm one of those, you know, I don't tie a ton where it's like, you know, I might tie up a couple of new bugs right the day before. Um, and I try yeah. to get it just right. Um, people that do it all the time, I'm sure they can probably tie one in 10, 15 minutes. Uh, again, like people like my brother, Matt or Eli Barrett, that, you know, they, they basically have like an assembly line. Uh, they can probably pump them out pretty, pretty quick, but they, they're, they're like artists, right? They get those guys that do that all the time. Uh, for me, it takes me better part of an hour at least. Well, it would probably take me the better part of 10 days. So. <laughs> right. It is fun. I'll say it like a half a bottle of scotch. And, uh, <laughs> right. And then that's the fun thing about it. You know, get get your drink or get a couple of beers yeah. out and do it. It makes it like an, an event to tie one. Yeah. But there's something cool about, um, I don't get to do it as much now that I'm guiding all the time. But before I guided, like it didn't matter if I had a hundred flies already in my box. I always wanted to tie a brand new one the night before and go fish at the next day. It's always just fun about tying up a fresh fly and, and put it to work the next day. Yeah, that's cool. That's one of the reasons that I I I still tie flies because I'm I'm not super good or proficient at it, and I haven't put the work in to be very good or proficient. But it's worth it to me to struggle through some flies that I can tie, and I, that's why I'm always searching for. Usually, Eric. Usually, the question I ask is. I'm a below average fly or slightly below average fly tire. What are a couple of flies that I could tie uh, to take up to fish with you? But yeah, I don't know that, that those flies exist. So I skipped that question. You know, there <laughs> is the nice thing about nowadays with social media and, you know, with the internet is there's a lot of good tutorials out there on ones that tie that, you know, there's ones that can be very complicated, no question. But there's ones out there that are very simplistic. Um, is there an easier time. one? Let's say I am going to go because it is something cool to me. And if I was going to go up there, I would I would probably try to take the time. Is there one simpler one that I could tie that if I brought it, you would say, all right, Jason, we'll fish it? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I guess I could give a shout out to my brother. Maybe I'm a little jaded. But he has one that's called a yard sale. And it's just actually a real easy pattern to tie that has you know, a lot of synthetic material in it. And it actually is super easy to fish too. Uh, I actually just had someone in my boat yesterday um, that we were talking about that. We were throwing all these other big flies and it was getting a little windier and a little more to the, you know, end of the day. And he put on one of those. He's like, ah, sometimes it's just nice to just be able to fire a fly out there real easy. Um, and I think that's his concept behind that. Something that has a big profile that's light, easy to cast and moves great. Right. So it kind of does all three of those and it's real easy to tie. Um, and there's a couple other ones too, you know, any kind of pattern that has, you know, deer hair, like a little bulk head in the front, um, type patterns, a lot of different names for them out there. Um, 
but th- those ones will always kind of move move well. But yeah, for me, kind of a go-to fly if nothing else is working, it, it will be that version of what he calls like a yard sale. All right, uh, let's stick with present. Uh, let's stick with presentation. Uh, what are some other things besides the fly? And maybe you can talk. We talked about retrieve a little bit. I don't know if you want to touch on that again or more. But what are some other things that you consider? or techniques that you use when you're trying to present uh, flies to these fish? So there's probably two. I kind of break it down in either, you know, your conventional uh, strip pause retrieve. And at least for me, um, there is something about just, you know, guys think speed. They want speed with with, um, musky fishing because that's kind of what it can be with with conventional gear fishing. Uh, But there's also something about, I, I like to mix in that pause, right? If I'm doing two or three strips in a row, pause and really let that fly glide to the side. Um, so kind of doing that, just mixing it up. Like I usually don't do the same thing the whole time. It might be strip, strip, pause, strip, pause, you know, but I, I like to mix that pause in there every once in a while. Even if I'm going fast, I'm always kind of mixing that pause in there. And if one is chasing it and it's not like bass fishing, or I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, you know, sometimes you can have a four or five second pause before they'll eat it. Like the bass can't stand it sometimes with that long pause or a trout when you're, um, at least when I was streamer fishing, kind of the rule of thumb was don't ever stop or slow down, right? Kind of game over. If you got one chasing a streamer and you stop, the fish sometimes would just bug out and, and leave, right? Well, yeah. when it comes to warm water fish, especially with, with like musky, sometimes putting that pause in there actually helps because it really lets that fly kick and get that side profile to them that, that has them strike. So I like mixing in a little pause once in a while, if not all the time. Uh, it just depends on how, what streamer that I'm using. Um, and then a second would be mixing in that two-hand retrieve that we talked about before. Uh, you know, I, I do that all until the lake ices up. Again, it doesn't necessarily need to be super fast, but just that straight, constant, like fleeing bait fish. Uh, yeah. And I'll, every day I kind of mix in both to kind of see see which one that, that they kind of want. Because there's some days that that's the only way that I'll catch fish is on that two-hand retrieve. And I'll go like sometimes weeks, and that's the only case where 95% of the fish will come on that. Because it just needs to be faster? Yeah, like I said, faster. Or sometimes, like I said, they just want that f- fish they just want that bait fish imitation swimming away from them right like they they want that chase i think sometimes what about presentation with regard to depth i mean i think you mentioned a little bit ago you're talking about you put a topwater fly on i i assume you're i was at uh i don't know if you were talking about musky in that situation yeah um but like when do you like what kind of lines are you using or how deep do you need to go? Like how are you getting it to where they are in the water column, I guess? So for me, uh, on Lake St. Clair anyways, I'm pretty much just using, uh, you know, full sinking heads the, the whole time. Uh, there's a number of different lines out there. Um, I use a lot of the, use a lot of the SA stuff. Uh, it's nice that they're right here, like an hour away from me here in Michigan. Well, maybe a little more than an hour, but um so I, I like the, the full sinking line. So the nice thing for me, like what I talked about before, I'm not really fishing any shallower than eight, nine foot of water. So um, the full sinking lines are just easier to cast as far, you know, trying to get that out there versus like an intermediate or floater. Um, and if I want to fish higher in a column, I could do one or two things, right? Either start stripping it in right away and faster to keep it up or, you know, using some kind of deer hair type fly that will be a little more buoyant that stays up higher. And then conversely to that, if I want to fish deeper, I have some flies that, you know, with the synthetics will sink down a little quicker or, you know, use a little, little heavier sinking line. 
Um, and you can stroll out there, let it soak for five, 10 seconds, get down a little deeper. Uh, most of the time with muskie, you can fish high in the water column, right? They're always looking up the strike. But there's some times where we're fishing in 20 something foot of water. If it's like real, you know, bright day, they, they might not want to move as much. And you want to get down a little bit deeper. You know, it's just a matter of letting it sink down for five, 10 seconds and at least getting halfway down in the water column. Okay. So just timing it based on the water column, giving it time to get to the depth that you want and you're, you're fishing sinking lines to do that. Uh, what about leaders? And, and these guys are pretty teethy, toothy. Yeah. Right? So yeah. So I definitely, I, I go with like a, a wire leader. Um, I haven't found, I first started off fishing. I was using a fluorocarbon leader. I was using like 70 pound, um, had some bite offs, which can be real frustrating, especially when you first get done or start doing it. Cause you know, I would go a month or so in between bites and you finally get one and it bit, you know, came right off. So I, when I switched to like a, a wire, flexible wire leader, um, I never saw any differences in hookup percentages. Um, maybe it's nice that I can not have to fish gin clear water all the time. Uh, I would suggest that someone's going to use fluorocarbon all the way through to use like a hundred pound or more. And you know, that should limit the bite offs, but yeah, I, I use a short leader. Um, I only use like about a two, two and a half foot total leader, but, um, and it, that's just so that, uh, you know, I don't like having all the knots up in my guides because at the end of every cast, you're doing a figure eight or like an oval, um, at every cast. So you want to, I kind of make it easy for my guys. I tell them basically strip down to that first knot and that's how much line I want out of the rod tip when they do that figure eight. Um, and that way it's not a pain in the butt of having to rip a bunch of line back out of your rod every time with knots and stuff. So I keep mine relatively short and, but I, I definitely use the, the bite leader, the, the wire just because it's, it's nice to not have to worry about that right if something else could fail in it you know the wire can even fail like where you're not sorry you always got to check that all the time because that can fatigue but it's nice knowing that when a fish eats i don't have to worry about the fish like biting off at all so it's kind of more just a, a peace of mind if anything else for me oh that's cool and then you just tie that straight to the fly yeah i end up doing like um about 18 inches or so of like either mono or fluorocarbon like kind of a heavier 50 60 pound and then to like a 40 pound wire which i use like probably like about 15 inches too uh and the nice thing is i use kind of like a reverse albright knot between those two and i can leave like a nice long tag like a little one and a half two inch tag and we get a lot of floating weeds on the surface from either whether they're dying or we get a lot of pleasure boater traffic that will kind of break them up so that kind of almost works as a weed guard above the fly and i've kind of found as long as the fly is relatively clean and the weeds can be up above it that doesn't even bother them at all. Uh, okay. So, okay. So you've got the the mono going from the fly line, uh, and you tie and do you do a nail knot there or just whatever? Yeah, that's where the Albright knot is. Um, oh, the Albright yep, knot. Yep. And, and so, then you go to the leader and the wire leader after that. To the fly. Yep. And what are you doing between the mono and the wire? Yep. So the mono and the wire. Um, yeah, going to the fly, I do actually use um, like a snap between those two. Um, I used to use one called a stay lock. Now I've been using, uh, shoot, I wish I knew the name of it, a different different one right now where I seem to get a little bit better action on the fly. Um, oh, like a swivel? Like a... Yeah, yep. So okay. um, it, I I don't use like the swivel. I just use the snap part of it, which is very important though because you can definitely use snaps that are too flimsy that, that will open up or, or fail on you. Um, okay. You can do like a big loop and kind of just do a loop to loop, like loop, you know, through the fly over. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that gets used a lot too. I, I just use snaps because I'm changing so much and it kind of just, um, you oh, know, prevents cool. from having to, 
you know, when I first started, it was just tied directly to the fly. And as you do a few changes, you're constantly tying and tying and tying a new, new leader. Um, so yeah, I just use that, check it a lot, make sure it doesn't fatigue at all. But um, that allows me to change out uh, fast and often. Because there are some days where I'll do, you know, numerous changes. Uh, now for me, a lot of times, if I was just me fishing, realistically, I could pick like two flies and bring out with me. And that's all I need to use all day. Because I know if there's a bite window, those ones are going to work. Um, but with depending on my clients, some of the time they want ones that they can maybe either see a little bit better or, you know, sometimes, you know, you go four or five hours without seeing a fish. Now, I know that probably the, maybe the right thing if I was fishing to keep that fly on. But sometimes it's doing a fly change uh, refreshes the angler. Like, all right, this is the one. This one might work now. Well, you know? yeah, because that's <laughs> how they learn to fly fish. I mean, if I'm coming out like wow, it must be the fly. I got to change the fly. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've, I mean, especially when I was starting out in, fl- in fly fishing for trout, you know, and, uh, you know, I was just, that's almost all I did was change flies. Well, I got to change my fly. And I never thought about like depth of water or presentation or different type water types or, you know, anything. Uh, besides like, well, got to change my fly. That's yeah. You know. And then, I mean, that's a, that's actually a good thing to do. It could be like fly movement. There's days where days want something, you know, a little different. Uh, but it's kind of funny to see the different for, for, you know, I'll wait a little bit longer. If I have a fly that's been working good for a while, I'm going to give that a pretty good. soak cause it, this is the hard thing with musky fishing versus other stuff. If you're, or a big, big predator trout this, this way too. Now that I've done musky, I look back at it. You can go, if I would say bass fishing, and there's a bunch of bass in this area, even when it's slow, you'll still maybe get a, a few of them to go. Musky, when they're just not on, they're not on, right? So you can go to a spot that has fish, you fish it, and you might think there's no fish there, or, you know, this fly isn't working, they just weren't on at that time, right? So um, I'll have a fly that I have confidence in, and I'll give that a pretty good soak. Uh, but then like my youngest brother, right? Like he would have a pile of 30 flies probably there before I make that first change, but that's just says how his find something that's going to work and everyone just has a different mind, you know, a different mind, a different, different way of yeah, thinking. And they want to be works. doing things. They want to yep. be busy. Yeah. But I joke around at the end of the day, if I took a picture at the bottom of my boat and there's 20 different flies there, that means we had a really terrible day of fishing because you're searching, <laughs> right? You're looking for anything in yeah. 99% of the time. It doesn't, it's not your fly. It's, it's the fish that day. Right. Yes. I or at least it makes you, <laughs> it makes you feel, makes us feel better if we say that. No. <laughs> what about these bite windows, Eric? These this sounds like the whole key to the castle. If you, I mean, if you knew when the bite windows are, I assume <laughs> you don't. Otherwise, you're not out there for eight hours a day. I know. Is right. that just what you have to do? You got to just be there the whole time. It if is, you, and it, I, I suppose I mean, if you had a real limited no amount of time, there's no way to predict. There's no way to like guess or learn or. There's a few little study things. these bite windows. Yeah, there there is a few little things. You know, obviously, uh, you'd be filthy rich if you knew what they all were. There's stuff like exactly. like moon phases, the minors and majors. Uh, you know, weather changes, obviously. But you know, if you are limited to say only being able to go out for two or three hours, you can maybe pick those. And you know, I'd probably pick either like a a moon minor or major that kind of thing. Uh, but there's nothing that's 100% concrete. You know, there's some things that put stuff in your favor, but. Um, I kind of just tell people go when you can go, right? Like there's been days where I've gone out there where I'm like, for us, like wind is like king, right? Um, wind helps out. If there's no wind, I don't care what you're fishing for on Lake St. Clair, it makes fishing really tough. Now, wind with a little bit of cloudy skies will help out. If you have bluebird skies and no wind, it makes it real tough fishing. Uh, not to say I haven't caught some really large fish in there, but if you have a nice breezy day, that gets everything going a bit more. So Why is that? 
it, there could be different things. You know, it gets, seems it gets a bait fish moving a bit more with that wind blowing. Um, you almost get like a natural current to the water w- with the wind moving. Uh, you'll even see the bait. They'll be like just hunkered down on the bottom when it's bluebird skies. But as soon as you get a little bit of wind, that starts getting up. It's hard to say. Maybe that goes hand in hand. Maybe just all the fish feel more comfortable and it breaks up the light on the surface. You know, it could be a number of things. But I've had days where I thought it is going to be, will be, lucky if we catch one fish and we end up having a really good day. And then there's other days where we're like, oh, this is perfect. We've got overcast wind. It's going to be great. And you don't see a single fish in 10 hours of fishing. So I kind of just tell people go when you can go. Um, you know, but if you, if you're limited on time, there's definitely a couple of little things you can pick, but for the most part, it's like, you know, you just got to know an area that has fish, um, and you fish that for eight hours and you might get a day where, you know, you get four or five hours where they're moving, but you might only get two 20 minute windows where the fish are moving. It's like you would think there wasn't a fish in the lake and also like a light switch goes on. You're seeing them all over and it might be as short as 20, 30 minutes and then light switch back off and it's back to being a ghost town all around you. So <laughs> does that mean we stopped fishing? <laughs> right. we, we had the bite window and that's it. Or Some how many bite you, windows in, in a day? Do yeah, you, you hope. I mean, sometimes it's only one or two. You hope you get numerous ones throughout the day or you're at least getting some follows in between that kind of keeps your, keeps your energy up. Um, what's the most bite windows in a day that you would expect? What's what's the high number? I mean, there's there's days where they're kind of just going all day. Uh, that happens okay. like only a small handful of times a, a, a year, right? That might only happen a few times a year uh, where you have just a lucky day where it's like six, seven, eight hours that, you know, the, the fish are, are moving. But most days it happens, um, you know, two or three times throughout the day. Uh, it just depends on how long or what time. You know, that's the hard thing during the summer. A lot of times, too, that can happen at night, too, right? So um, it's the whole – I'm probably going to upset a little bit of people here, but the whole fall feedback is, like, one of the biggest myths there is, right? Um, Why is that upsetting? Why? Because uh, it's just a saying that's always been around, right? People are like, oh, they're getting fat. It's because they're, they're feeding more in the fall. Um, where really it's just a perception thing where it's, uh, you know, nature's way of – the fish are still feeding as much as they were before, but their metabolism is slowing down, causing them to nature's way to cause them to gain weight for the winter time, right? Um, and because, oh, okay. and not to say they don't still yeah. feed at night, but during the summer they'll feed at night a lot too. So, say in a 24-hour window during the middle of summer, um, if they feed three times, you might catch get one in the morning, one in the evening, and one in the middle of night. So, if you fish all that 12 hours, perception you think well, we only had two little bite windows. They're just not feeding as much where they actually need to eat more often during the summer months when their metabolism's higher because they're burning through what they eat a lot faster. Where in the fall, now you're only having like seven, eight hour days of light. They may not feed as much at night. So now if you take those two or three feeding windows and now you truncate it on the eight hour window, you think, well, we've had them feed three times in eight hours or feed more often. And that's just not the case. You're just catching them during that time and they're getting heavier because nature's way of making them gain weight. Um, but that's actually, uh, kind of a, a myth that's always been around that they're putting a fall feed bag on. Okay. So these feed windows are kind of the, the time when they're eating. What about where they're eating? Like, not like, uh, you know, the, the waters, but like what part of the waters or how do you read water and where do you know to go? Is it all experience or if you were going for the first time, like where do you start looking? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's real interesting. That, that was kind of the, uh, you know, a lot of it is experience. Uh, 
you know, the nice thing I guess about Lake St. Clair, you can see a long ways is you can just tell people go where the boats are at. <laughs> you know, you find a pack of boats, there's a reason why they're there. Um, so if you're kind of just new and have no idea, uh, it made it real interesting for me because I kind of just did it all in trial and error and flies are not a good search pattern. I mean, we fish, even if you want to fish as fast as you possibly can, we're fishing relatively slow compared to conventional gear guys, right? And they can cast three times the distance, reel it in five times faster, that kind of thing. Um, so that took a little while. Uh, but yeah, a lot of it, so Lake St. Clair is relatively structureless. And what I mean by that is it's basically a big bowl and there is weeds and there's weeds everywhere. Um, but it's kind of trying to figure out what weeds, where it might hold fish. Uh, for us, it's a lot following the gizzard shad migration too. So finding the forage, right? Um, where that's going to be. And if you know a general area, which could be multiple miles, a uh, long general area, but if you know a general area, that's when you can really break it down. So if you know kind of a general area of where to get started, uh, because our lake is fairly structureless, um, there's not much depth changes, that, that kind of thing. Rock piles, we don't have any of that. Uh, so water, color, and clarity, uh, or clarity, right, is kind of what could be our structure. And what I can mean by that, sometimes you can go from having real chocolatey water to clear, and that color change, that clarity change, will be treated as structure by the fish. You know, the bait a lot of times want to go in that more stained water for protection, um, and your predator fish, you know, or even bass, you know, all the predator fish, bass, musky, they'll cruise right along that that stain line uh, almost as structure. So there's things like that. So for, for me, I'm looking at once you understand the lake, you kind of know what times of year, when they'll be at certain areas of the lake. And then you break down that small section of water into more areas of light based on the water clarity. Um, and it's not only, it's, it's also, you know, much like trout fishing. Uh, you can find those fish maybe in that gin clear water where you can see the bottom in 15 feet of water, but getting them to eat becomes much more of a task. So it's kind of like, you know, when you have the perfect water color when you're streamer fishing, you know, for, for trout, you have a nice little stain, you're more likely to get them to eat more in that. So it also comes down to, you know, maybe I'm going in water that has less fish, but I have a much better chance of getting one to eat in that kind of water versus water that, you know, I, I may see 15, 20 fish that might follow, but it's much more difficult to get them to eat. Okay. So that it sounds sense. like you're saying, <laughs> oh, it makes sense for sure. Uh, it sounds to me like you're saying clarity, color, any kind of like if you did have vegetation, right, that would be something that would be, you know, these shelves are um, kind of contrast, I guess, uh, between either clarity or vegetation or something like that. Um, and then just covering water, just seeing more of that than you can, uh, or seeing as much as that of that as you can, um, and just getting after it. Find, yeah. Just be there when they're there. Yeah. You know? Be there, you know, hopefully you find some forage, you know, you can get the perfect storm where you have like, um, you know, perfect combination of, you know, some nice stained water, uh, weeds and vet, uh, and forage, but, um, you know, forage, finding some bait fish is definitely probably the, the biggest thing, which again is why they're in certain areas at certain times of the year. Um, so if, if the bait fish is there, you have the right color kind of water that, you know, it kind of put, puts the odds a little bit more in your favor, which isn't much of an odds increase, but it is a little bit more in your favor than uh, than fishing tougher, tougher areas. Okay. I was going to, we got one more thing I want to cover in the these uh, basics or whatever, but why, 
I want to go back. We'll go back a little bit, but why musky? And I know yeah. you fish for other things. We talked about this before the show, but what is it? A, what is the musky? What is the draw? Why is it this kind of like, um, kind of love or craziness not, that you, we got? <laughs> yeah, it's infatuation or it craziness, is, yeah. or it's like this musky craze that when I meet people, they they have it or they don't, yep. right? And it's like this musky thing. Uh, and then why the fly rod? Like, so what is it? Why does it have to be that combination? Why does it have to be that fish? Because you could go out and, I mean, a guide for other things on the lake and other people are fishing for other things. Yeah. Or fish for them in different ways. Uh, that makes a lot more sense than fly rod. Uh, so musky. So I guess, again, going back when I was a child, I was fascinated with them. And I think it was just the sheer as a kid, it was a sheer size, known as the top predator in the lake, and they weren't easy to come by. Uh, that's the thing that really drew me as a kid. Um, as I got they're older- They're the top predator. Yeah. Muscat, so pike, all that, they're, they're the head honcho. The exactly, yep, water. yep. Okay. Yep, so thank you. All right, yep. that makes sense. So the biggest, basically top freshwater predator that we have. <laughs> predator, right? that's yep. another, yep. that's cool too. So it was that fascination, you know, the teeth, the size of the fish as, as a kid, you know, that that's what really kind of drew me in and just knowing again, how hard it was to catch them. Uh, as I got older, still the challenge that, that's definitely there. Um, but it's a, it's a unique fish. Like I, I do enjoy catching pike too. Um, when I'm targeting them, I, I hate catching them when you're musky fishing. Um, but a uh, little false. You think you finally hooked into one, and it's just a pike, you know. Uh, but that's yeah, like the whitefish. Yeah, the there you go. That's what you guys consider whitefish. Yeah, I hear the same thing. We have a funny saying on Lake St. Clair where you ask an angler because it's a, one of the few fish species in the world where you ask someone how they did, and they'll tell you like, "Oh, we are 0 for two with eight follows." Like, who keeps track of how many you saw? But you do in musky because that's somewhat of an accomplishment just getting a follow sometimes right so we have a saying here on lake st Clair, like you know you talk to a musky and they're like how'd it go today and they're like ah i was two in the hole and what that means is negative one every time you hook a, a pike so <laughs> you, <laughs> you know it's a slow day when you're catching pike and not getting any musky um, that's cool yeah, but it was just something it's just the the i guess the the challenge the excitement um musky's cool in a way that it's all about to eat right the the fight for the size of the fish, you know, especially when we're using the heavier gear that we use, isn't anything spectacular. Like it may last 10 seconds. It may last, well, hopefully it never lasts more than like about a minute and a half, two minutes. Um, but so it's a short fight. Now they are incredibly good at getting off. So it's a stressful one minute fight, you know, uh, two minute fight because you, you lose half the ones you hook. You seem at least the bigger ones. Um, but it's all about that eat and that you can have like your fly coming in and all of a sudden, you know, a four foot fish just comes out of nowhere and eats it or um, the figure eights, right? Like there's not another freshwater species that does that regularly, maybe not even saltwater, that the fish will be right at your feet and they could care less that you're right above them. Just absolutely care less. And it's just not a big fish. We had it happen with a 24 inch fish the other day. It's just something that's genetically in them that they just do not care that you're right above them. They're so focused in on that fly and eating it that, you know, you can go around right at the boat and, and catch them that way. Right. So to have a giant fish right at your feet that could care less that you're there and then just destroy your fly. It's just uh that's what it's all about. And this is the challenge, right? I mean, we talked about it. Why the fly rod, right? It's just the challenge. I mean, I originally used to always tell people it was about five to one, but now, um, cause I do run some conventional gear trips too. Cause I get a lot of guys that one guy does it, but he doesn't have another buddy that does. So, uh, we'll do both. And, um, 
it's more like 10 to one, like out fishes flies. You know, we'll have our moment once in a while in the late fall, but it's really just that challenge, right? It's a, it's a difficult thing to do. You're chucking big, cool looking flies all day at them. And then you can do everything right. You know, we didn't really get into the hook set yet either, but you can do no, everything right. Where, okay. Next, okay. Eric. But you can do everything <laughs> right. And the fish still wins like 50% of the time. Right. They just, yeah. So, um, I would think for me, it'd be like, well, I'm a fly fisherman, so I'm going to fish with Eric. I'm going to fly fish, right? Like, I'm going to fish for muskie. Like, why don't I try fly fishing for him? Now, if somebody invites me out on their boat and they say, do you want to fish for muskie with my conventional gear? I would say yes. And I would have, I would be happy to do it. Yeah. Great, grateful. And, and, you know, and it's still worth too. experience doing it, right? Just to be able to yeah. muskie fish. Um, right. And I'll get guys yeah, that do yeah. that. They're just like, hey, I just want to catch one first because it's always been a dream fish of mine to catch. What are my best odds? And I'll tell them, you know, this conventional with maybe a bucktail or whatever kind of lure. And then they might catch one, then switch to fly and then go into the challenge of doing that. Um, well, let's talk about the hook set. And how do we not lose the big ones, or what are the tech? <laughs> what are the techniques? It's tough, right? You'll hear the strip set all the time, right? Um, that you know, that's the key. If they eat a little further out from the boat, it's you know, get a couple of good hard strips into it, and then you know, bring the rod to the side. I I like to keep them off the surface. They they like to go to the surface a lot, and you know, um, again, best case scenario is they grab it and take off, and they just don't rarely they rarely do that. They'll just sit there and be flopping around on the surface, and they can do such. They can change direction with such large head shakes, you know, back and forth, two, three feet. Uh, they just find ways of throwing that fly out. And it's tough, right? It's such a, a bony, toothy mouth. Um, kind of think of a tarpon with teeth. Uh, that's kind of what you're dealing with a lot. So, um, you know, perfect world case. The hook pops through, but most of the time it doesn't with all the teeth and everything in there. So sometimes it's hard to get that hook to grab something. So um, nice, good. Keep the rod straight strip set into them, um, and then just keep tension. I, I tell people, don't even worry about getting them on the reel. Just keep tension on that rod and then try to keep them off the surface. So I like keeping the rod down in the side, um, try to keep them off the surface. And it's just keep tension. Uh, on a figure eight, a lot of times you can't always strip set. Like you'll have to use first, the rod. Okay. <laughs> first describe to people the figure eight. Cause I, yep. I know what it is. Cause I mean, I've seen some of this, but a lot of people, I think I didn't know until I started talking to Muskie guys right yeah <laughs> and gals but uh what is the figure eight why do we do it and how do we do it yep so what's cool uh so basically description at first as you're bringing the fly closer to the boat um i like to get the rod tip down in the water um you know foot and a half two feet down in the water even uh and then with only about i don't know 18 inches of line off the, your rod tip maybe two feet at the most you kind of just make a big oval or a big eight shape in the water uh, with big wide turns. That's, that's the key is big wide radius turns, if that makes sense. Um, there's one of two things. One, you can have a musky found your fly into the boat. Um, and it's just a way to extend your cast, right? You strip all the way to the boat. Now you have nowhere to go. By doing this big oval, it kind of keeps the fly moving. Um, and they love it sometimes, right? Because it's making a real drastic change in direction, which may trigger a strike, uh, there's that. So that's one thing. Two, other times you just do it at the end of every cast. Um, it's two good things. One, it's good muscle memory. You keep practicing every time. So when that fish is behind it, because I don't know how many times I'll have someone do a perfect figure eight to end every cast and all of a sudden one's coming in and they're like, oh my God, here comes one. What do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, the same thing you did in the last 300 casts, right? Like, and they'll just lose their mind and screw it up. So it's practice. But two, a lot of times you could either have a fish 
fouling further back, you know, 10 feet behind it, or in our case, sometimes 10 feet down that you won't see them, but they're fouling it in. And you do that figure eight to end of every cast, they'll just come out of nowhere and eat it, right? So you're doing that at the end of every cast um, for those those reasons. Um, and it's real important to do at the end of every cast. And whether it's a figure eight or oval, it's just something to, that you really kind of need to do at the end of every cast because it'll just increase the amount of fish that you catch. And it's pretty cool to see a fish. Uh, you're sitting there just doing it and you don't see anything around and it just kind of comes out of nowhere and eats. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty cool experience. And no, it's really cool. The hooks that I can tell when that happens, though, what we call it like a blind figure eight. If I hear my client all of a sudden just yell, like, whoa, like, and the hook set is them jumping, I was like, oh, you didn't see that fish when it came in, did you? And they're like, no, it literally looked like it came right out from underneath the boat. Um, but it's important to do in the key that I always tell everyone big, wide turns. So if you have a real big fish, they can't turn on a dime. So you bring the fly in, you know, and you do real big, wide turns. Uh, big radiuses, so that because the fish is gonna uh, gradually kind of turn. Um, do that. Uh, trying to think if there's like any other big tips. That, that's probably the, the biggest thing is just uh, make sure it's wide turns. Um, that's what I kind of see people do the most. And then keep this in mind too if you're a bait fish trying to flee from a predator trying to eat them, you'll never swim directly back at what's trying to eat you. Um, seems like it sounds like common sense, but I will say this to people and they do it all the time. They'll have a fish come in, and if it's not right on it, they want to take it right back at the fish. And you're like, and the fish most of the time just freaks out because they're just like, "What's going on?" And, you know, you know, they want that chase, and they also probably realize, again, if I'm trying to eat some fish in nature, it's never going to swim right back at me to let me eat it. So, kind of keep that in mind. Always be going away from the fish, and even if the fish kind of stalls out, it's kind of hard to explain it over um, just video. But if the fish you know, stalls out, you still want to go out and around and maybe come from behind it back towards the front in that way, but never directly at the face's fish or the, the, the face of the fish. Right. And for all those bait fish out there that are listening, survival skills, <laughs> right. if you're ever attacked by a muskie, swim directly at it. Right. Yeah, there you go. Call, call his bluff. <laughs> I actually had it happen maybe one time that comes in mind where I had someone brand new first time. And he didn't have much experience fishing in general. Uh, his dad just got him as like a graduation present or something. And he's reeling in and, he's, and it's a big fish too. And it's coming right in and he does the figure eight. And the fish just kind of sits there and he comes right back at the fish. And I'm going, no, no, no. And the fish literally just opens his mouth and the fly basically just swam right into his mouth and he closed it. I'm like, no, no, no. Oh, set, set, set. You know, and he ended up losing it. But I was just like, that's the one time I can think of where he did absolutely everything wrong and it actually worked out um, except for not landing the fish. Yeah. All right. Well, how do we land them? Yeah, that's a good part. Um, for us, a nice big giant net. Um, but yeah, like we talked about before, when you hook them, try to keep them down off the surface. Um, and I just like to keep tension on them. Just keep stripping down, keep tension. Um, and then, you know, ideally, again, I talked to you about before about, um, you know, landing them quickly. And that's the safety of the fish, right? Um, you know, especially in the warmer months, you don't want to be fighting these fish for two, three, four, five minutes. Uh, they just build up so much lactic acid that some can't recover from that, that fight, especially the water's a little warmer. So um, two reasons, right? You know, I, my gear buddies... Because for us, if you get a real big fish, it's still going to take a little bit of time to land it, right? You can only horse well, them yeah, so much. Like with how a, do you fight this monster <laughs> yeah, I know, fish? Right? Like, what do you what do you do? Do you just hold on, keep it tight, and like, you know, I mean, wh- keep it tight, keep it low. Is there anything else? And then just real. When do you know to like 
when is the time? It's, yeah, it just I, I control mean, the fish, fish, right? Yeah, stuff, it is. Let it, basic let it run fish. when it wants to run. Yep, yeah. basically. I mean, there's a point where you can baby it too much where I'll tell people, like, all right, it's time to start putting it to it. Like, if you got a 50 inch fish, it's going to go when it wants to go. But most of the time, you know, we got such heavy leaders, pretty heavy right. rods. You can really um, put it to them and, and turn the fish, uh, especially at the first initial so many seconds of, of the run. Um, and then, yeah, luckily I, I use a pretty big landing net, um, you know, just also for the safety of fish. I can net the fish. It <clears throat> can sit in a big basket basically in the water while I get my my tools, which is a very important thing that we sh- maybe we could get into. But, you know, to, to unhook the fish, it could all stay in that water, um, unhook them, quick picture, you know, if maybe a quick measurement, especially if the water is a little colder, and get them back in the water right away. Uh, and with the big fish, it could take numerous minutes sometimes for them to get all that lactic acid out of them and stuff before they'll they'll kick off. And you want to let them kick off. Um, I'm a, kind of a big believer in just let them kind of like slowly swim off. Uh, I've unfortunately only lost two fish before out of all the years of fishing. And both times, um, the fish was kind of like, either set in the water and it just took off right away or I got dropped in the water, it took off right away. And then like five, 10 minutes later, it came back up and it was like lifeless. And you talk to a biologist, they'll say it's kind of like their last, they take every last little bit of energy left when they took off right there versus like slowly getting all the lactic acid out um, and letting the fish slowly swim off. Okay. You were talking about tools. Well, what you said is interesting. I want to hear about the tools, but so I guess if you keep them, uh, I mean, if you keep them from getting away, then they're able to like disperse that more slowly or just, cause what I'm thinking is like, if I catch a fish, a big fish and I fight them for a while and maybe the water's warmer, uh, you know, it might take longer for that fish to recover. Right. And I'm aware of water temperature and, and things like that. I'm just saying like, sometimes it happens where you catch a fish and it takes longer to recover than other times. Uh, is that what you're saying? Like just kind of this recovery period, you know? Yeah. Yep. Um, again, especially if the bigger fish or if the fight lasts a little longer and again, if it's a big fish, it is going to last, you know, a little bit longer. Um, I guess the recovery period, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe this is too scientific, but, um, is it, if, is it, if you like, if you let them go too fast, they swim off and die versus if you let them recover longer, they will just, they're not going to die because they have better. They're not going to just be out in the water, like without any kind of they like, cause when they're out in yeah. the water, then they have to swim and move around versus. Yeah. So there's obviously a fine line of both, right? You want, you want them to say in the lake, you want them, especially if the surface temperature is a little warmer, you want them to swim down and get down to deeper water where there's better oxygen in the water. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But in that case where I had both of those lose a fish, when I talked about just they're already so worn out. And when they hit that water and took off right away, it literally like used every last bit of energy that they had in their life, literally to take off like that. So um, just holding them there in the water, you don't want to pull them back and forth because you don't want the water going the wrong way in their gills. Just hold them in the water. There's no current. So you can't really like, you know, put them upstream like you would a trout, but you just want to hold them in the water, let them get that lactic acid built out of the other muscle, which is their solid muscle, right? Um, and then slowly you'll see them start, you know, breathing a bit more, start to kind of kick in. Once they, they can stay upright and start to swim, I kind of just let them swim out of my hand and, 
and take off. Some some people want to wait until they're like really, really kicking super hard. Once I feel like they can stay upright on their own and kick on their own, I'll let them go. Keep an eye on them. They may swim around on the surface for a little while too before they finally feel ready to go. Um, I just kind of keep an eye on them and, and let them swim off that way. All right. So, Eric, we covered yeah, a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, it's uh, fun. Uh, anything that you want to say before we kind of start wrapping it up or anything you want to pass along about um, – fishing for muskie or Lake St. Clair or anything that we haven't covered that you think we should cover? No, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, you know, when I was a bit younger, I, I would maybe be a little bit more passionate about certain things like, you know, leaders and stuff is a, a hot topic a lot of times with muskie fishermen. But I mean, I don't know. I, I'm to the point now where it's kind of just like, you know, go out there, enjoy it. Um, you know, think of the safety of the fish, of course, which is why I talked about with that or landing tools, making sure you know, you have uh, like nice long pliers and not little tiny forceps and stuff. Because uh, most of us fly fishermen came from a trout background, right? So most of the time you had a little, you know, um, yeah, forceps thing that un- unhook them. So, you know, I'll see guys out there with that. And they're trying to unhook a fly that's like 10 inches down a big gullet of a, a muskie. You know, you, nice long landing tools. Uh, the other one I will say, especially fishing in the boat, right? Um, and it took me a little bit to, to kind of learn this too, is... With trout, steelhead, you know, our cardinal rule is always never have the hands in the gill area, right? Keep them out of there. Um, tail hold the fish, whatever you want to do, just make sure you don't do that. Uh, with musky, you actually do want to hold them that way, right? You're not in their gills. There's plenty of room where they have the gill plate right there. You can stick your hand right there and get a real good hold. They're so kind of top-heavy, head-heavy that if you grab them and you want to hold them by the tail and lift them up, when they start flopping, you have zero control of it. That fish is going to fall out of your hands a lot right and so i'm i'm talking boat fishing if you're in the river you can stand in the river over the water if that fish starts to flop you can just like let it go and it goes in the water and it's safe right but in a boat you do not want to drop them in the boat i mean it's going to happen but you don't want to so holding them up there by that gill plate and giving a real good grip of that and just holding your hand and kind of supporting its weight underneath the belly uh on a horizontal hold is the safest way for the fish uh, I don't know how many times when I first started fishing, uh, I'd see on social media, I'd post something, people would start blasting me like, hey, you murderer, way to kill the fish. And it's like, <laughs> no, I'm keeping this fish safe as possible. Um, it's one well, thing that us fly guys will get blasted all the time for the tail holds and stuff, which again, make for great pictures and stuff, but those fish get dropped a lot. So that is a safe way to handle the fish and it's probably the safest way to handle them. Uh, so that that's kind of something I'll tell people as far as just when handling the fish. No, that's really good to know. Um, obviously, you are in this professionally. You care a lot about the fish. You're talking to biologists and such. So can you describe that just one more time? I mean, because what I would do is mess that up, right? So if I'm out with Eric, I'm like, oh, yeah, he's he's holding it for me or you're showing me. So how do I get in there without messing up? Because you're talking about the gill plate, not the gills. Those are two different things, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, the gill plate, so the gills will run right there, but there's enough room for your hand to get right along the gill plate up along its chin um yeah, yeah. and the gills will be at the back of your hand and you might get a little bit of what they call a gill rakers it's almost like a sandpaper type filling the back of your hand but your hand is not actually in its gills right um obviously with trout and steelhead there might not be as much room in there to get your hand but when you have a muskie there'll be plenty of room in there to hold in that way um you know you're still not you're not grabbing by the gills you're just standing on the outside of the gills and you can get a real good grip with you know your four fingers up into there with your thumb push against your fingers that you can really hold them good and, and support that belly of the fish, uh, especially the okay. really large ones. 
Sounds good. So that's about it. I'm sure there's probably other things we can <laughs> talk all day, but uh, yeah, there's, there's nothing else that comes right to the top of my mind right now. Uh, okay. Eric, before I ask you my last question, how can people find out more about you? Maybe schedule a guided trip or follow you along on your journey uh, with fly fishing or if there's anything that you wanted to get out there that you're excited about. All right. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, yeah. So my uh, business is called Musky, M-U-S-K dash E as like an Eric uh, fly fishing. So um, I have a website, uh, social media, which is not, you know, most of the people uh, hit, hit me up that way through, through like IG or, or um, even Facebook still, but most time like Instagram, uh, make sure I got my user <laughs> right. Cause I got a few different ones, but it's E Gryaski is my last name. G R A J E W S K I fly. Um, that that's one way you can look me up or just, just by my name on there. So, um, there's that, uh, I, on the website has my, my phone number and email. I tell most people to just go ahead and give me a ring or shoot me an email. Um, and if I can't get back to you right away, uh, I do apologize in advance, but I kind of have a pet peeve of mine of being being with guides in the past where they're on the phone the whole time when you're out there fishing with them. I, I want to give my attention to my guy. So if I if it seems like I feel short with you where I'm like, hey, let me call you back a little later, that, that's usually why. And I'll let them know that, but I, I don't want to be having like a half hour conversation on there when I'm out there w- with paying clients. So uh, I usually get back to you like that evening um, or the next morning. Uh so that that's probably the easiest way is you just hit okay. me up. Um, Can you spell number. the website again? Yep. So it's yep. So um, the website actually I got to remember now. It should be like www dot m u s k dash e fly dot com. I think that should work, right? Thanks. <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't use the website as much anymore. Yeah, that's no problem. Uh, It'll link in the show notes. It, it, it we'll is link funny. It to the show notes. I can uh, want people to hear it the right way. It, it age age my clients pretty well based on if they tell me they got their information either from the website or through Instagram or you know through other forms of social media. I got usually a pretty good idea of what my clients and I'm up there in age too, so I get it. But I can definitely tell what my <laughs> clients are going to be like before I even have them in the boat. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will link to those things in the show notes so people can get out there and schedule a guided trip for muskie and all the other species of fish that you're uh, chasing out there in Lake St. Clair. All right. I appreciate it. Last question. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more tactical and one more philosophical, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? Ooh. That is a good one, huh? Um, probably I did everything kind of uh, feel and learn myself, maybe a fly casting class or something or go to a professional. Uh, that would have speeded up the process just learn how, how to, to cast a little bit better. Um, yeah, that's probably the big one. Um, and that's now tactical. it's just, yep, that's the tactical side. Uh and then just, you know, now just kind of knowing like what kind of fly movement that I like, uh, that, that kind of stuff that, that that's probably a, a big one. Although I kind of figured that out fairly early, but just, uh, knowing how to kind of design the flies to get them to, to what, um, now h- how to get that, that kind of fly movement, uh, 
Man, that's, yeah, that's the only ones I can kind of think of right now. Um, and maybe just not to take it so serious. I guess at a young age, right, I was, uh, it's not serious, but just, yeah, it was just all about, man, trying to catch everything else. Uh, just enjoy the moments. Because uh, like what I mentioned about, like, cracking that beer open now when we get down landing that trout. Just really, it goes by so fast, like everything just in life in general. Um, and those moments do too. Just as like enjoy every one of them and just enjoy that that ride, that, that learning experience. And uh, not always just be so competitive or like, you know, having to try to catch, you know, all those fish with a really big one. Just really in, in, enjoy the moment. So when it does happen, especially when something like with muskie, um, where, you know, you work so hard to get it to really cherish all those moments yeah maybe start the stopwatch after you catch the fish <laughs> right there you go that'd be a smart one other than that you know we talked about it before like, you, hey, we got a 10 minutes window. of chilling out guys yeah. <laughs> we gotta chill but if you get that bite window you know at a younger age i wanted to catch as many as possible so you want to get right back at it um yeah, yeah. but uh definitely enjoy the moment so it's a fun way to fish and we get we get competitive with each other just even in the fly fishing world and stuff like that um yeah, we're all kind of after the same thing. Uh, you know, just kind of relax, enjoy the moment, and uh, enjoy it. But there's so many cool people out there doing it. It definitely, you meet a lot of cool people in, in the fly fishing world. Um, so it's fun. It's a unique way. Keep at it and enjoy it. All right. Well, Eric, thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us about fishing where you're out out there. And, uh, I wish you well moving forward. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Super fun. You're obviously a passionate angler and, uh, I learned a ton and I think this is, um, yeah, this is a great, uh, great conversation. So thank you for that, man. All right. You appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Wade out there fly fishing podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There.